Our first scripture reading today is from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. I invite you to follow along on page 186 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and the length of days so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today, again, taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. I invite you to follow along with the version that you have in your hand. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. You know, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at now for the third week in a row, we have an opportunity to look at Jesus' character sketch of the kind of people whose lives reflect God's new world, also known as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In the first part of the sermon, the Beatitudes that we looked at two Sundays ago, it gives us a picture of the internal character of the people of God's world. And after that, just last week, we read Jesus' teaching about being salt and light that describes the outward focus of God's people who illuminate the darkness of the present world with the inbreaking light of God's new world. However, there are still some lingering questions. Questions like, how will the people of God's world know they are doing it right? Questions like, what does the life of God's world look like in practical terms? What are the ethical implications of living the life of God's new world in the present? And maybe that's why in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be looking at today, Jesus gets more, much more specific regarding some of the rules of conduct for those who would follow him. So let us look at this passage together, beginning with verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. 
And if you say you fall, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, to put things in perspective in our present context, despite dwindling natural resources, mass pollution, overpopulation, and overconsumption, we still love our throwaway culture, don't we? You see, statistics tell us that we toss away more and more styrofoam, paper and plastic products with every passing day. Not only do we casually toss those things that are designed to be disposable, like takeout food containers or diapers, coffee filters, vacuum cleaner bags, we also prefer to throw away, rather than fix, increasing quantities of our fairly durable goods. It's just too much bother and trouble to try to repair them ourselves. For example, when was the last time you took a pair of shoes to a cobbler to be resewn or resold? Do you bother to rewrap or even revarnish, say, your outdoor furniture? Or do you prefer just to run down to the discount store down the road for new, cheaper lawn furniture? But for all those things that we're happy to toss away, happy to replace or renew, there is one familiar thing that we're absolutely loath to part with. Now, what could that be? How about our old habits, our old behaviors, 
and attitudes. You see, we have a tendency to recycle and retool and return to the same old reactions, same old attitudes and practices throughout our lives as if each one were made of the most precious resources available. And maybe that's why we say old habits die hard. Unfortunately, if the truth be told, a large percentage of our most beloved old rags would have been banished to the trash heap decades ago. Now, you don't have to show your hand to brag, but how many of us started diet as a New Year's resolution? And how many of us are still on them today, six weeks later? Or even if you took me on having a second chance to restart on Chinese New Year just two weeks ago. Sure, all of us are aware that eating healthy food in sensible portions would be good for us. But the old habits of midnight snacks and chips and ice cream, extra gravy and second helpings are so ingrained in our daily eating regime that our new healthier commitments are quickly choked out. And similarly, how many of us said we would exercise more and get into a routine of walking or jogging or running? And how many of us are still doing them today? In today's gospel lesson, Jesus preaches some pretty harsh sounding warnings to us about the consequence that we face should we fail to practice righteousness within every aspect of our lives. Even more graphic are the remedies that Jesus prescribes as treatments for our lack of righteousness. We'd be wrong if we read Jesus' words about cutting off our right hand or plucking out an eye as just a reflection of some ancient barbaric code of justice. Because I happen to believe Jesus' directives here are actually vivid, descriptive metaphors that tell us we must simply stop doing the things that harm others or ourselves before those old behaviors completely destroy us. Now, I don't believe for a minute Jesus is referring to us obeying the law here because we all know the scribes and the Pharisees knew the law backward and forward. And as the self-appointed legal conscience of Israel, they were bound and determined to make sure everyone obeyed the law to the letter. In fact, the scribes acted as lawyers for the law of Moses, and the Pharisees believed that God's kingdom would come only, only when the people of Israel all obeyed that law perfectly. The problem with that approach, of course, is that focusing on the law alone imposes limits on obedience. Since I only have to comply with the law and nothing more, a Pharisee evaluated himself and others based on compliance to the rules and not on the basis of compassion toward others or even the needs of the community. And this is why Jesus drops the bombshell of a statement in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if the people thought the scribes and Pharisees had it all together because they obeyed the law to the letter, then they were missing the point. The law points to something much, much bigger. Jesus says it points to the way of living as a community of God's new world. And so here, Jesus establishes a pattern in the sermon that actually points to the stated law of Moses whenever he says, you have heard that it was said, as well as the compassionate community building intention behind it whenever he says, but I say to you. While the law of Moses was designed to show Israel how to live together in a world of human authority, Jesus wanted to discuss what it meant to live in a world of divine authority. That is, in God's world, the kingdom of God, and not our perceived world. Now you may say Jesus takes the old law and radicalizes it. That is, shaking it down to the roots of the law's intent. And by the way, isn't that exactly what the word radical means with the base word radix, meaning root? And that's where we get the word radish. Yes, it's true that Jesus is rooted in the law. But then he calls his disciples to live a new life with a much, much deeper rootedness than the legalism of scribes and Pharisees. And while the Pharisees were concerned with what people did or did not do with their hands, Jesus was more concerned about what people had in their hearts and how that would translate into their relationships with people as a sign of God's new world. And so let us now look at the first of these statements in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Now, we all know do not murder was one of the original Ten Commandments, a law set in stone. But why is it? It's because murder destroys the humanness of another. And so the law of Moses minces no words. Murder is something to be avoided, which most of us are able to do. But How many times have we heard people say something like, well, what I did was bad, but at least I didn't kill anyone. And yet, while it's clear that we should avoid murdering the body of another, Jesus here radicalizes the old commandment and goes down to his root. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. You see, Jesus understood that the dehumanizing act of murder has its roots in the dehumanizing of another person through our anger. And not only does anger dehumanize the other, it also dehumanizes us as people. It's because every time we decide to allow anger to smolder inside of us, we become less than fully human less than the people God created us to be. And instead of merely avoiding murder, we should then embrace reconciliation 
which leads to community. And that is the difference between following the rule and engaging a relationship. The difference between avoiding doing something with the hands here and then doing something with the heart here. The second statement is found in verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, why is it? It's because lust dehumanizes people into objects that we use for our own pleasure. We might be able to avoid the physical act of adultery and so obey the law, but forget that the emotional or psychological attachment of lust is just as destructive. And so here, Jesus calls us not to merely avoid breaking the law, but also to avoid breaking the fidelity of marriage that supports community, trust, and love. The kind of fidelity of marriage that supports all that's going on that Christ himself has with his bride, the church. Yes, God's new world is characterized by faithfulness. And when we embrace fidelity in our hearts and in our relationships, we will then learn how to embrace it forever. Coupled with that is Jesus' teaching about divorce. The law said that a man could simply give his wife a certificate of divorce, and that was that. Sounds easy, but it's not unlike the no-fault divorce our culture so easily embraces these days. With the exception of infidelity, however, Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 that divorce should be off the table since the root of marriage is faithfulness, community, and love. If our hearts are focused on maintaining that relationship, then our hands will be less likely to sign the dismissal papers. And then, of course, there is the law about making vows. You see, under Jewish law, as in the law courts today, swearing something under oath by sealing it with something like the phrase, so help me God, is common. If you swear on oath in court, then what you say has to be true, or you're violating the law. However, the implication here could also be interpreted as in, when I'm not under oath, then I may not have to be as truthful in what I say. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus takes the law and goes to his roots. He says, we shouldn't just be truthful under oath, we should be truthful all the time. Why? It's because telling the truth is the basis of the community, as lies and falsehoods tear a community apart. There's an old saying that suggests if you want to dig a new hole, you don't dig the same hole deeper. Yet that's often the technique many of us are trying to use to turn our lives around to get our relationship back to normal or on track at least. For example, if you're losing touch with your spouse or your children because your work schedule is so busy, don't think scheduling more family busyness together is the answer. 
Don't stop smoking just to start compulsively overeating. If you turn off the television just to get lost in some trashy novel, you're still a couch potato. Am I getting close to meddling? Okay then, what do we do now? What do we do now? The $64 million question. Well, if you want to be healthy, stop doing those things that harm you. If you want harmony in your life, stop doing those things that cause tension. If you want peace in the world, stop doing those things that lead to conflict. If you want a closer relationship with your family members, stop doing those things and saying those things that build up walls between you and them. If you want to rekindle the romance in your marriage, stop doing those things that create animosity and boredom. If you want to live in a close-knit, caring community, stop hiding behind your front door. If you want a spiritual life that fills you up, stop pouring all your energies everywhere else but toward God and His church. Now, what's the power to stop doing what we should not be doing and change our direction? One night, a hotel guest stepped into the hallway to go to the ice machine and accidentally locked himself out. The problem was that he was in his underwear. Knowing he had no choice, the guest went downstairs across the lobby and up to the front desk. He asked for another key to his room. And the young lady looked at him and said, I'm sorry, sir, but before I give you another key, I need to see some ID. Now that's what I call power. But the power that I'm referring to must be power that comes from being faithful to the context where God has placed you. No matter where you are situated, there is power in that situation. Power for good and for God, and power for ill and for evil. And it is possible for us to have power just to stop bad, destructive behavior. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that if we cannot do it on our own. And obviously, we cannot do it on our own. It's true that relationships, business endeavors, one's professional life, parenting, caregiving, personal health and fitness, all these things can be complicated. But what we have here in our text is not. Not at all. In fact, in our Old Testament reading today, we see that it's not like God is giving us a supermarket list of choices. Instead, God is setting us down and laying it out very simply, our choices. Life or death. Which one do you choose? The life the ways of the Lord? Well, that's what Deuteronomy 30 is telling us, that loving the Lord, walking in the ways of the Lord, and keeping the commandments of the Lord, that's the life that you need to choose. Well, life choice benefits, that's long life, living in the land, prosperity and blessing. But then there's also the death choice. According to verse 30, Verse 17 in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the death choice is disrespecting God. It's about disobedience, about drawing yourself to false idols, 
and worship. The death choice downside? Glad you asked. That's certain destruction. That's about losing your land and also a short life. The death choice upside? Well, there is no upside. Any questions? It's that simple. No, it's not that complicated at all. And this is what Jesus calls the church to do as a community of faith dedicated to living and internalized righteousness. That we are to do this together as a community. Yes, you can have a new marriage, a new body, a new attitude, a new spirit, a new career, a new community, even a new world. But only by stopping the old, destructive, hurtful behaviors that we all so persistently recycled for all these years. Yes, it's true that old habits die hard, but the changes we want to come about in our lives will not happen just by simply wishing them away. We must make a decision and cut ourselves off from our old attitudes and throw them away for good and for God. And so to sum it all up here this morning, I believe the point of Jesus' teaching here today is quite simply this. The condition of the inner self is basic to Christian community and Christian morality. The loving attitude toward a brother or sister is more important than a generous gift. Sexual immorality and human violence are rooted deep in our psyche and they cannot be eradicated by superficial means. We learn that the people of God's world must follow Jesus' teaching, which requires a purity of intention beyond anything we had ever been taught. Our lives must come from clean hands and a pure heart. And so we must look inward and not outward. It is there that we will come to the root of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the kingdom of God, in God's world. Amen.